you know, there were a group of computer scientists. They got together and they, you know, mentioned that, you know, boats and ships are always referred to in the feminine. They're always referred to as females. Steady as she goes. And so a group of computer scientists, all happening to be male, got together and they decided that computers should be referred to as female, like ships. And they gave five reasons why. Number one, no one but the creator understands their internal logic. Number two, the native language they use to communicate with other computers is incomprehensible to everybody else. Number three, the message bad command or file name is about as informative as, if you don't know why I'm mad at you, then I'm certainly not going to tell you. <laughs> Number four, even your smallest mistakes are stored in long-term memory for later retrieval. Steady as she goes. And then number five, as soon as you make a commitment to one, you find yourself spending half your paycheck on accessories for it. <laughs> but as soon as they made their release, you know, that these male computer scientists, talking about computers as female, another group of computer scientists got together. They all happened to be female. And they said, no, no, no. Computers should be referred to as male. And they gave five reasons why. Number one, they have a lot of data, but are still clueless. <laughs> Number two, they are supposed to help you solve problems, but half the time they are the problem. Number three, as soon as you commit to one, you realize that if you had waited a little longer, you could have obtained a better model. Number four, in order to get their attention, you have to turn them on. And number five, big power surges knock them out for the rest of the night. So I guess computers have to be referred to as male. Did I say we're in Matthew chapter 19? Good. We're going to read one verse tonight. Verse 8. Jesus said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Father in heaven, I pray you would give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us tonight. Please speak to every husband here, every wife here, Lord, help us to trouble-proof. Help us to divorce-proof our marriage. Give us the wisdom and the courage, Lord, to fight the good fight and to finish well and to be that example for our communities and for our families and for our church and for our children, the type of example that we should be. Speak to our hearts, Lord. We want our marriage to burn brightly for you. And we pray that you'll help us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this evening, I want to just cut right to the chase. I'm just going to spit it out. 
Most couples get divorced not because of incompatibility or irreconcilable differences or financial pressures or sexual dysfunctions. There's a far more basic problem. Husbands and wives are just plain hard-hearted. Married people tend to grow stubborn. They get proud and obstinate. Some spouses insist on getting things their own way, and when they don't, they split. Now, don't get upset with me for saying this. I'm not the one who originated it. This is what Jesus concludes here in Matthew chapter 19. And he is the one who knows our hearts. He is the one who has invented marriage. When the Pharisees asked Jesus about Moses' instructions on divorce, he tells them, Moses allowed divorce because of the hardness of people's hearts. Understand there would be no such thing as divorce if it were not for hard hearts. I believe every marital problem, when whittled down to its core, is a problem of the heart, a stubbornness, a selfishness, a pride, a resistance to change gets in the way of what it takes to keep that marriage alive. It's plain hard-heartedness. In Matthew 19, verse 7, the Jews reference Deuteronomy 24. This is a passage where Moses regulated divorce. You see, the Jews assumed that Moses' rules favored divorce, but just the opposite was true. God's law formalized a procedure that made a divorce more difficult to obtain. See, prior to the law, all divorces were no fault, just free and easy. A man gets tired of his wife and he can just send her packing. But Moses required that you first obtain a certificate which would force you to visit the elders of the city. This created a cooling off period to make you think. It also required public exposure and some accountability. Now the person seeking the divorce has to think about it. Can the problems be solved? Can this be worked out? Do I want the public humiliation of admitting to a failed marriage? Because of the time delay, rash judgments could be avoided. It was all weighted to prohibit divorce. In essence, the law of Moses installed cautions. Divorce became more difficult. Moses' requirements for divorce were intended to discourage it, never promote it. The instructions in the law were more a concession to man's weakness than they were a reflection of God's will. God knows the pain and damage caused by divorce. When a person divorces, they think they're aiming a sniper's rifle at the person they were once married to, but they're not. They're actually detonating a pipe bomb. They think they're shooting that person, but they're actually doing damage to circumstances and people and society and church far beyond what they think. Children get bruised, hearts get shattered, the church becomes disillusioned. So much goes wrong, so much happens, so much hurt is caused when a divorce occurs. 
And this is why God hates it so. Malachi said to the Jews of his day, the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce for it covers one's garment with violence. Notice God sees divorce as a violent act. The Hebrew word translated divorce implies an amputation. The root word means a hewing off or a cutting apart. Author C.S. Lewis said this about divorce. Christians all regard divorce as something like cutting up a living body, as kind of a surgical operation. Some think that the operation is so violent that it cannot be done at all. Others admit that it is a desperate remedy in extreme cases. They are all agreed that it is more like having your legs cut off than it is like dissolving a business partnership. Again, this is why God hates divorce. Hear ye, hear ye. God never ever condoned divorce. It was never part of his divine plan. In verse 8, Jesus is clear. From the beginning, it was not so. This is why Jesus takes us back to the creation. When God made marriage, he designed it for one man and one woman to live together for a lifetime. Earlier in Matthew 19, in verse 5, it records God's edict in, the, in Genesis, in the garden. He said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Jesus adds, so then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. But here's the problem. God's ideal was interrupted by man's ordeal. God's pronouncement on marriage came in Genesis 2. But you know what happened in Genesis 3? Satan dangled the forbidden fruit in front of Adam and Eve. The first couple bit. And suddenly all of life, including marriage, was plunged into the chaos and pain of sin. A wrench was thrown into the gears of holy matrimony. God knew that sin, selfishness, and stubbornness, and pride would cause some husbands and wives to grow so hard-hearted that if divorce wasn't tolerated, the callous couples would end up killing each other. God didn't want marriages to result in murders, so he put up with what he had always hated and still does, divorce. Yep, that's why the leading nemesis of a marriage is a hard heart, a hard-hearted honey. With the war on terrorism, the CIA recently hired an assassin. The drones weren't doing the job. There were thousands of patriotic applicants, but they sorted the candidates down to three. Two men and one lady. Well, they brought the first man into the room and they pointed to a door. They said, sir, a good assassin follows instructions no matter the consequences. We're looking for a cold-blooded killer here, and we need to put you to, a te to the test. Behind that door, you're going to find your wife sitting in a metal chair. They handed him a gun. They said, we want you to take this gun, and we want you to walk in and kill her. Well, the man balked. He said, you've got to be kidding. 
There's no way. I could never hurt my wife. The interviewer said they were sorry, but friend, you're not the man for the job. He walked out. Well, the second man was given the same assignment. And he tried. I mean, he, he gave it an honest try. He took the gun and he slowly went over to the door and he reached for the doorknob. But after a few seconds, the man just broke down in tears and he handed the gun back to the interviewer. He conceded. He said, man, he said, I know. I just don't have what it takes for this job. Well, finally, they brought the woman into the room and explained that her husband was behind the door sitting in a metal chair. They handed her a handgun, told her to kill him. Well, she calmly, she opened the door, she walked into the room, and immediately they heard gunfire blazing. Dozens of shots rang out. The gunshots were followed by sounds of crashing and banging and screaming. Finally, the door flung open, and there stood this frantic woman. She wiped the sweat off her brow, and she said to the CIA agent, Hey, you didn't tell me the gun was loaded with blanks. I had to beat him to death with that chair. Come on, ladies, have a sense of humor. <laughs> and, and let me say that hard-heartedness is not just a female issue. There are plenty of men just as calloused. It reminds me of the two farms in Alberta, Canada. These two farms are side by side, and between them are two parallel fences, just a couple of feet apart that run for a half a mile. Why two fences when just one would have done the job? Well, it seems Paul, the owner of one farm, he wanted to build a fence between the two spreads and split the cost with Oscar, the owner of the other farm. Well, Oscar didn't want to contribute, so Paul built the fence all by himself. Well, after the fence was completed, old Oscar said to Paul, he said, well, I see we have a fence now. Paul replied, we no way, that's my fence. In fact, I built it two feet onto my property, and if I ever see one of your cows grazing on my two feet of grass, I'm going to shoot it. <laughs> well, eventually, Oscar needed the field next to Paul to graze his cattle, and he was forced to build another fence. Today, both men are long gone, but their parallel fences are a memorial to the hard-heartedness of the male species. We might as well admit it. Hard-heartedness doesn't just affect one gender any more than the other. It's capable of infecting both men and women. There's an old country song. Any country music fans? There's an old country song that contains the following line. You're so cold, I'm turning blue. That's what happens in many a marriage. A chill settles over what was once a red-hot romance. The relationship goes from chilled to frosty. Eventually, it becomes an iceberg. Both, both husband and wife have become plain hard-hearted. It's amazing how cozy couples can become hard-hearted honeys. Usually, a couple starts out with a sensitivity. They're aware of each other's needs. They're kind and caring and considerate of one another. Both partners go out of their way to be understanding. They take the time to listen. You know, engaged couples admit their mistakes. And they try to better themselves even. It's not until several years after the wedding that you discover the spouse you thought 
was Mr. or Mrs. Wright has a first name. Always. <laughs> You're now married to always right. It's sad, but as a marriage ages, spouses tend to grow more stubborn rather than more sensitive. You've heard of the three-ring circus of marriage. Engagement ring, then wedding ring, then suffering. <laughs> All kinds of things can happen in a marriage to produce a hard heart. Distraction, neglect, harsh words, criticism, irresponsibility, forgetfulness, hurt feelings, unresolved hurt feelings, retaliations, failures to communicate, apathy, misunderstandings, an unwillingness to confess, an unwillingness to forgive. These things can all drive a wedge. Spouses start to keep score, resentment builds, bitterness sets in, and to protect ourselves from more and more hurt, we start to tell ourselves that we don't care. And before long, we believe it, and we end up really not caring. When that happens, you got a hard heart. A man once came to see his pastor about his troubled marriage. The pastor opened his Bible to Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. But the man said, Pastor, I, I really don't love my wife anymore. Well, the pastor then flipped over to John 13, verse 35. He read the words of Jesus. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The pastor said to the husband, at least you can love her like another believer. He said, but pastor, we don't even like each other. Well, now the pastor was frantic. He turned over to Matthew 22, verse 29. Love your neighbor as yourself. The man replied, but pastor, you don't get it. We hate each other. That was it. The pastor knew the exact passage, the perfect passage for this couple. Matthew 5, verse 44. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. <laughs> Sadly, there are times when a marriage gets to a point where it needs Matthew 5, verse 44. You know, in a Russian wedding, the best man is far more important than he is in an American wedding. In America, the best man holds the ring. That's about it. But in Russia, when the wedding's over, the best man has to sign a personal guarantee that the union between the husband and the wife will stay married at least six months after the wedding. If the marriage doesn't make it to six months, the best man pays a fine of 150 rubles. Personally, I like the idea. I think we should import it to America. A lot of couples would do well to have some outside support an objective third party looking out for the longevity of their marriage. And guess what? I can't think of a better best man for your marriage than Jesus Christ. He's the best, best man I know. And if you haven't done so, let me encourage you to make Jesus the best man in your marriage. He has the ability to prevent a hard heart. Let me say that again. Jesus has the ability to prevent a hard heart.
And if you succumb to a hard heart, it only says to me that you never made Jesus your best man. I want you to consider three steps that Jesus has taken to protect your marriage from hard-heartedness. First, he has set an example. I think I've got, there we go. He set an, an example for us. Second, he stirs up forgiveness in us. Third, he supplies us with great, great power. He has set an example, he stirs up forgiveness, and he supplies us with power. And here's our part. If you don't want to be a hard-hearted honey and avoid hardness in your marriage, then you need to follow Jesus' example and empathize. You need to obey his stirrings and forgive, and you need to seek his power through prayer. You need to empathize and forgive and pray. Here's how to protect your marriage from a hard heart. Well, the first step you need to keep your marriage from the deep freeze is to place a high priority on empathy. I hope you know a little compassion goes a long way. And Jesus sets the example here. That's what the incarnation is all about. In the person of Jesus, God put himself in human shoes. He stepped out of the comfort of heaven and he permanently chained himself to our plight. He came to experience our joys and to feel our hurts and to taste firsthand our predicament. A surgeon, I, I, I had dinner tonight with a doctor. It was a wonderful, we had a wonderful conversation. Reminded me of this, a surgeon was once discussing a case with a class of medical students. He told the aspiring doctors, he said, the muscle in the patient's right leg has contracted until the right leg is shorter than the left. Therefore, the patient limps. What would you do in such a circumstance? One student raised his hand and said, I'd limp too. <laughs> you know, that professor didn't recognize it at the time. But that young man just revealed why he will probably be an outstanding doctor. Because good doctors need empathy. A doctor needs to feel his patient's pain and be able to put himself in his patient's situation. And this is also what makes a good marriage. A man and a woman need to be willing to take the time to listen to each other to desire to understand their spouse's perspective before they jump to conclusions. They need to put themselves in their spouse's shoes. In 1 Peter 3, verse 7, Peter encourages husbands to dwell with your wife with understanding. See, marriage is a task that requires taking notes. You need to remember. You, you need to know what she feels about certain situations. You got to pay attention to three things. What ticks off your spouse, what makes them tick, and what tickles them. Empathy goes a long way. Too many of us men particularly are like a bull in a china shop. We run roughshod over our wife's feelings. We forget that talking is a necessary form of communication. One particular husband, he picked up the remote control. He turned to his wife and he said, Honey, 
Anything you want to say to me before football season begins? <laughs> That's not the type of consideration that we're talking about. And what applies to husbands also goes for wives. A wife can forget her husband's needs. Oh, she can get so wrapped up in the kids that she puts her hubby on the back burner. Ladies, he's not just a father to your kids and a provider and your mechanic and your handyman around the house. He's a person too, believe it or not. I've met wives who complain about their demanding husbands. They wish that he would cut them some slack, give them the benefit of the doubt, love them with no strings attached, while at the same time they're expecting perfection out of him. Both husbands and wives need to lighten up and show each other some empathy. A Harvard University study revealed that the average married couple spends 37 minutes in communication. Not 37 minutes a day, but 37 minutes a week talking to each other. On a recent flight, I picked up a Delta magazine and it had a report in it on the habits of pet owners. It said the average dog owner talks two hours a week to his dog. That means that the average person talks more to their dog than they do to their own spouse. Did you hear about the couple that called their friends to see what they were doing one night? The girlfriend she said to her buddy, she, to her friend, she said, well, we're just, we're just drinking coffee together, just chit-chatting. When the woman hung up the phone, she turned to her husband and she said, why, why don't we ever just sit around, drink coffee, and talk to each other? Her husband said, we can do that. Why don't you put on a pot of coffee? Well, before long, they were sitting there. They were sipping their coffee and staring at each other in silence. Finally, the husband says, Honey, why don't you call your friend back and ask what they were talking about? <laughs> hey, but at least they're trying, okay? At least they're trying. Married couples need to try. They need to realize that they can't walk together if they don't talk together. Care again. Show some concern. If you want to protect your marriage against hard-heartedness, the first step is to be like Jesus and show some empathy. The second step is to practice forgiveness. And here again, Jesus sets the pace. Paul writes in Ephesians 4 verse 32, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. You know, we read that and we think, how nice. We're supposed to forgive. That's great. Then we ignore it when it applies to our husband or our wife. But listen to the rest of what Paul writes. He says, forgiving one another just as God in Christ forgave you. And that phrase makes it personal and inescapable. Boy, I rejoice over the fact that Jesus has forgiven me fully and freely I admit I would be nowhere without the forgiveness of my Lord Jesus. I am so thankful for his forgiveness. Now he says, I should forgive others exactly as he has forgiven me, and that begins with my spouse. 
In Matthew 6, verse 14, at the close of his model prayer, Jesus adds these words, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. We don't often apply that verse to our marriage, but why? We should. It's been said every marriage is made up of two sinners. A good marriage is made up of two forgivers. Hard-heartedness takes over a marriage. Callousness becomes an impenetrable shell. Husbands and wives reach a point where they're no longer willing to forgive and it destroys the marriage. Remember the chapter and verse divisions in your Bible were not in the original text. They were later inventions to help us reference specific passages. This means that Matthew 19 is actually a continuation of Matthew 18. And you'll notice that the last half of chapter 18 deals with the subject of forgiveness. Notice this, Jesus' teaching on divorce and marriage is prefaced by a lesson on the importance of forgiveness. In verse 21, Peter asked Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Boy, old Peter thought he was being generous. The Jewish rabbis taught you had to forgive a brother two at the most three times. Peter thought seven times was above and beyond the call of duty. But Jesus answered, I do not say to you up to seven times but up to 70 times seven. In other words, Peter, if you're trying to keep count, you've missed the point. God places no limits on his forgiveness for us. He always forgives a repentant heart. Thus, we should forgive others to the same degree that we've been forgiven. Jesus even tells a parable in chapter 18 that hammers home this point. A man forgives his servant millions of dollars, but the servant won't forgive his debtor a few bucks. Now apply that parable to marriage. You mean God will forgive me a billion bucks, but I can't forgive Kathy five dollars? Are you kidding me? Read the parable. The man's unforgiving heart ends up costing him dearly, and nothing will cost your marriage more, more dearly than the unwillingness to forgive. You protect your marriage from a hard heart by remembering the way that the Lord has forgiven you then extending that same forgiveness to your spouse. And there's a third step you need to take to protect your marriage from hard-heartedness. In fact, if you're already in a hard-hearted marriage, please pay attention to this final point. You need to pray. You need to seek the power of Jesus in your life. In fact, I want to challenge every couple in this room tonight, before you go to bed, I want you to get on your knees and both of you pray. Oh, make it simple. Don't, don't, you don't have to pray fancy prayers. Just make it simple. And it doesn't have to be long. But Jesus has the power to make hard hearts soft again. And he wants you to pray and ask him to do so in your marriage. You can do that. I challenge you to do that. In Matthew 19, verse 8, Jesus says, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, 
permitted you to divorce your wives. But then he declares, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. In other words, Jesus ups the ante. He raises the expectation on marriage partners. In one verse, the Old Testament's tolerance for divorce vanishes in light of the work of Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, God allowed for divorce because he didn't want marriages to end in bloodshed. Moses and the law lacked the power to soften hard hearts. The only way out of a bad marriage was divorce or murder. But today, that's no longer the case. That's why Jesus says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Jesus commands us to stay in the marriage since he is able to soften hearts. Jesus can prevent, he can, he can transform a hard heart. Jesus' love is a heart softener. Today, the way out of a hard-hearted marriage is to give your heart to Jesus. Listen to what Jesus promises to do in the heart of the believer. Ezekiel 36 verse 26 tells us, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. He promises to take hearts that were as hard as a rock and make them as soft as a baby's behind. Reminds me of the teacher who asked her first grade class, where's your heart? One little boy pointed to his fanny. My heart's down here, he said. She was curious, she said, what makes you say that? Because every time I do something good, my grandma pats my bottom and says, bless your little heart. Jesus makes a hard heart as soft as a baby's bottom. He can do that. He can even do that in your marriage. Jesus' love is a fire that melts the will. It's the stick that stirs up the willingness where there was none. Jesus fans a flame of hope from totally wet wood. He takes dry, coarse hearts and saturates them with his love until they become soft and absorbent and pliable. Several summers ago, I tried to dig a couple of holes in my backyard for some posts. I got my post hole diggers out and I took a few stabs at our Georgia red clay. Those metal blades bounced off that hard soil like a pogo stick. That ground was hard as concrete. I came in, I was sweating. I finally decided to go up to the tool rental and I got me a motorized post hole digger. Power tools. Every man's love. But even after a few hours with those gasoline powered power tools, those post hole diggers, that soil was so solid, I still didn't get those holes as deep as I wanted. Finally, I came inside exhausted, tired, defeated. And that's when Kathy asked me, she said, have you taken the hose and just sort of wet the ground a little bit and then try to dig the holes? As usual, her suggestion made a lot of sense. Boy, we, we look at the hardness of our spouse's heart 
even the hardness of our own heart, and we think there's no hope, that the ground is just too hard. It's like Georgia red clay. But we forget Jesus can saturate a hard heart with his living water. The love of Jesus can make the soil soft again. Let me ask you a question. Have you prayed about your marriage? Have you prayed with your spouse about your marriage? Have you really asked God to change your heart as well as his or hers? Perhaps God has done a heart softening work this weekend. How do you protect and nurture a soft heart? Our part in the marriage is to always show empathy, to make forgiveness a habit, and to pray, pray, pray. Then Jesus will continue to keep our hearts soft. Several years ago, a man named Glenn Wolf died in a Los Angeles nursing home. He was 88 years old. And though Glenn left behind children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, no one came to claim his body. The city had to pay for his burial in an unmarked grave. But what made Glenn Wolf's case so unusual is that he held a world record. The Guinness Book of World Records recognized Glenn as the most married man. Wolf had been married and divorced 29 times. He had spent his whole life looking for love, yet no one loved him enough to provide him a decent burial. I wish we'd all realized that divorce, that finding someone better is not the answer. The best way to find love is not swapping spouses, but sticking with the one you got and making it work. Hang in there. Learn to love your spouse. Pray that Jesus will soften your hard hearts. See, Moses and the law could reveal a heart. They could convict a heart. Moses could even condemn a heart. But it couldn't soften a heart. And that's why the old covenant tolerated divorce. But instead, Jesus specializes in tenderizing hard hearts. This is the way out of a bad marriage. And it's not divorce. You and your spouse can give your hearts to Jesus and walk, watch him do a miracle in your marriage. Empathize with each other. Forgive as you've been forgiven. And pray. Trust in the heart-softening love of Jesus Christ. He is able to break through a hard heart. Father, thank you for this weekend and for bringing us to this place, Lord. Lord, you're so good. You're so loving for us, toward us. And Lord, you know what we need. And Lord, you've brought us to this place and to this juncture. Lord, I pray for the couple here today. Their hearts are so hard. Lord, they've pushed, kept pushing each other away and away and away and away. There's no forgiveness. There's no empathy anymore. 
Lord, I pray that tonight would be the turning point in their lives, in their marriage. I pray that they would humble themselves, that they would humble themselves before you and before each other, and they would recognize their problem, admit their need, and that together tonight they would pray. I just want them to pray because I know that if they do, you'll hear and you'll answer their prayer. And nobody else can pray that prayer for them. They've got to pray. You've called us all to pray. But I know you see their situation. You see their hard hearts. You saw it when you brought them to this retreat. And Lord, I know you want to do a transformative work in their lives tonight and in their marriage. Lord, I pray that tonight they'll open their hearts to you and rededicate themselves and their marriage to you and ask you, Lord, to soften their hard hearts. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.